I love a good podcast, as you know, and I'm always happy to share resources for parents who are looking for creative, smart content that both entertains and offers enrichment for curious kids everywhere. So I'm happy to let you know about this awesome new show from the creators of the hit kids podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix's Brainchild, The Adventurous World of Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as Math. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited into a secret order of problem solvers on an adventure through time, packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs. The series explores themes that kids like ours love, like the stories behind math, critical thinking, code breaking, pattern solving, and more. And episodes transport kids into iconic periods in history like Pythagoras's Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England. So cool. New episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, a perfect length for those car rides, for meal times, for break times, and bedtimes. What I love about this show is that it's kind of like listening to a book on tape. The story is captivating and includes lots of problems listeners can try to solve. The voice actors are fantastic, and the math concepts are seamlessly weaved into the narrative. It's exactly the kind of show Ash would have loved a few years ago, especially during our homeschool years, because finding that perfect blend of entertaining and educating, it isn't always easy. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. I would love for adults to stop seeing kids who are acting out as bad kids or being difficult or somehow a problem. And instead, look at it as an opportunity to strengthen that child's skills, whatever the skill at hand may be. And really, it's good when kids misbehave because then it shows us how to help them. It's this red flag or signal to us that, oh, attention is needed here. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and today is an episode about bad behavior, specifically the good news about bad behavior. That's the name of a new book by journalist, author, speaker, and parent educator, Katherine Reynolds-Lewis. In this episode, Katherine and I talk about what our kids' behavior is telling us and how we as parents and teachers and other adults in kids' lives can best respond to it while encouraging our kids to develop into healthy adults. In researching and writing her book, Catherine connected with one of our favorite parenting thought leaders, Dr. Ross Green, and reframed her own thinking about bad behavior as being a child's way of demonstrating lagging skills. Her book aims to help parents navigate the tricky behavioral situations we face and to work with their children toward better solutions. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope it offers you some good food for thought. Here is my conversation with Catherine. Hey, Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, I'm so happy that I discovered you and your awesome new book via the interwebs, and uh, just so happy that we're able to bring you on the show, because I think your book and the message you're sharing through it is really going to be an interesting one for our audience. So... Before we get into that, I always start these conversations by asking people to just tell me a little bit about yourself, you know, your background and who you are as a writer and a parent. Absolutely. So I'm a journalist. I started off in business journalism, gosh, 20 years ago, and really was 
very much focused on that until I had children. And then suddenly all these questions of parenting and education and instilling character and executive function started to be much more interesting to me. And um, around, I guess, 2008, when the recession really hit and um, newspapers were having trouble, I lost my job along with the other 24 people in my bureau here in Washington, D.C. area. So then I went freelance and really was able to write about whatever I wanted uh, that I could get someone to pay me for. So then I started delving much more into education and parenting and trying to understand psychology and what was going on in my kids' brains. And um, through that, I just sort of shifted my writing practice more and more to be writing about parenting subjects and child development. And then in 2015, I wrote an article for Mother Jones Magazine about school discipline that went viral. And that was really such a wonderful launching pad to write much more about child development and delve into the neuroscience of how our brains get wired the way they are. And eventually writing this book, The Good News About Bad Behavior, which came out in April 2018. I love hearing stories like that because... I think it's just so cool when work life and parenting life joins together. So what a great thing to be able to focus your professional energy and, and time doing all this research, which you can then totally use in your own life. Right. It's the definition of news you can use when I'm writing about discipline and at 3.30, my kids tumble in the door and do something I don't like. Then I get to test my new knowledge. <laughs> yes, that is a hazard of this business. We know I'm in the same situation with, you know, getting to speak with so many parenting experts. And then I get many opportunities to see where I'm screwing up and to practice the things that I'm learning. So I want to talk about your book. So that's going to be the focus of our conversation. Can you tell us you gave us kind of an overview of how you got into this, but in specifically talking about behavior. Tell us a little bit more about the impetus behind the good news about bad behavior. And then beyond that, what you are hoping like it does in the world, if you have a big goal for how you hope it changes conversations or impacts parents. Oh, what a wonderful question. And I guess it is a long story because I started puzzling over this question of why won't my kids do what I want? Really, when my uh, youngest was three and she's now 11. So in one way or another, I've been kind of pulling at that thread for eight years and really got interested in it because my kids are just so different from I am, you know, the way I am. They are rambunctious, high energy, creative. And I was the typical good girl who did what I was told. And I love to sit and read and uh, for hours. And they love to read also, but they also have so many other interests and ideas about how they should behave in a family. And so I started trying to understand how we could all work together. And over the course of those eight years, I really came to understand their behavior, not as bad behavior or trying to be difficult, but as needing skills to manage the transition or to handle their impulses or simply to learn to be civilized and sit at the table during dinner. 
Um, over the course of those eight years, I was also volunteering in their school. I was a Girl Scout leader. I coached Odyssey of the Mind, which is a creative problem-solving team. And in all these settings, I saw other kids who just seemed so different from the kids that I grew up with in how they responded to discipline and how they interacted with adults and each other. And so that got me curious about whether it was a broader issue and change in how kids are developing today that maybe would be something important for everyone to know about. And then as a journalist, I started speaking to experts. I started interviewing psychologists. And I met a man named Ross Green, who's a psychologist in New England. And at the time I spoke with him, writing a typical parenting feature story, he was about to move his family from Boston to Maine. He was uprooting his teen kids and his wife and leaving his practice at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. And that impressed me. So I started learning more about his model of discipline, which started with children in locked psychiatric wards who really had intense um, challenges that made them a threat to themselves or others. And his model, which is very collaborative and cooperative, was remarkably successful. So he managed to reduce holds in those settings from 20 a month to zero. So from kids needing to be restrained physically or medically, so often suddenly they were just cooperating with with the adults. And he moved his model into juvenile justice settings and had very similar success. And then in schools where principals were telling me that their discipline problems had been reduced 70, 80%, that Teachers were able to do more instruction. The kids were getting along better. And that's what led to the Mother Jones story and really this whole book. And in terms of what I hope the book will do in the world, I, I looked at his model and three other discipline models that are based on research and, and science for what kids need and, and how kids' brains develop. And from those, I pulled the three common threads that I think they all share, which are a very strong adult-child connection communication about what's going on, the problem at hand, and then a focus on capability building so that children are seen as needing skills, as I said earlier, and not bad, that kids need to build their ability, their social emotional skills and their ability to manage their own behavior, thoughts and emotion. And so all of these models share that. And there's so many examples in the book of how to implement those three steps, connection, communication, and capability building. And as for what I hope it'll do in the world, I would love for adults to stop seeing kids who are acting out as bad kids or being difficult or somehow a problem. And instead, look at it as an opportunity to strengthen that child's skills, whatever this skill at hand may be. And really, it's good when kids misbehave because then it shows us how to help them. It's this red flag or signal to us that, oh, attention is needed here. And this is how kids develop. They they go through stages when they are struggling with some new challenge and they need support often to to figure it out. And and that's our role. It's not that we're going to always have perfectly behaved children. It's to always be constantly supporting them and helping them tackle these challenges. One of the most startling findings in my book was the figure that one in two children by the time they're 18 
will have some kind of mood or behavioral disorder or a substance addiction. And to me, that was just stunning that every other kid in my child's preschool class, by the time they graduate from high school, will have something pretty serious that they are managing. And I hope that it's actually a hopeful and optimistic statistic because it sort of normalizes when your child is going through something, whether it's ADHD or anxiety or some kind of brain difference, that you're dealing with one challenge, your neighbor's probably dealing with something else, and we all are in it together. So much of what you just shared just totally resonates with me and I'm sure with listeners. So I want to go back. First of all, I love that Dr. Green's work was such a part of your book. I know we had emailed back and forth a little bit about this, but he is certainly, you know, I've had him on the podcast. He is someone most of our listeners are very familiar with. His book, The Explosive Child, for me, was just changed our family's life and the whole model of of reframing uh, lagging skills. And, you know, it, it's just such a shift that once you make it, it's kind of like getting new glasses, you know, everything changes in your life. So I love that that was underlying your book. And then you talked about stop seeing kids as acting out and looking at things that are happening as opportunities. And maybe talk a little bit more about that. That's something that I've worked just personally a lot on is trying to look at any time, you know, in the past when we've had some big intense reactions or just things just totally caught me off guard. And suddenly we're in this situation where things are not going well to try to think, okay, what is the learning moment here? Like, how can I flip this on its head and turn it into an opportunity? So can you talk a little bit more about that and how parents can make that shift in their mindset in terms of how to approach bad behavior? Absolutely. I And I, I also want to start by saying, obviously, this is very hard for parents too. like, it's not, it's not so easy to, to go through a day with a child who's highly emotional or has difficulty with transition or who isn't cooperating in the way that you need. And I just want to acknowledge that, you know, these are really big challenges. And one of my goals with the book is to offer some kind of community and, and support to parents who feel like this, this is much harder than I thought, you know, and, and it is, it's harder now than it, than it was in the past. The tools from the past don't work anymore. So I'm hoping that this new framework, these new eyeglasses, as you say, will help people to, you know, have a little more courage to deal with the challenges and I guess the way that I would, I, the way that I see it is that our our children just aren't learning the normal developmental stages that they need the way that they used to. So kids used to learn social emotional skills through play, through managing their own time, through all the things that have sort of disappeared from our modern society. And it's entirely possible that there's something else going on, some other environmental factor that's contributing to the rise in anxiety and depression, ADHD, behavioral issues, and developmental challenges that kids are facing. But we're sort of here in the trenches, and we have to get through our day. So the more that we look at a kid acting up as showing us that there's something needed, it just puts us in the mindset of problem solving and being capable, instead of feeling like, oh, no, now my day is ruined. And the plans that I had for, you know, getting through these activities or managing our household routine are disrupted. 
so for me, it's been very helpful just to try to attack those kinds of situations with enthusiasm instead of despair. And and I think that's often what we go to when our kid is acting up is we think, oh, I did something wrong, or I didn't prepare for this moment, or I should have known this was going to happen. And so we have that sense of failure that we've somehow caused it or that we're to blame for not preventing it. And those are just not helpful emotions. They're not going to make us stronger in the moment at dealing with our child. It's not going to give us that resilience or sense of confidence that we need to lead our children through a difficult moment. And that's, that's one of the things that I've found at least that is, is much more helpful. So I think that too, you know, this sense of failure and shooting on ourselves, as I say, like, it is a pretty new, I mean, it's a generational thing. I I know that my parents certainly, you know, I was a kid growing up in the 70s and the 80s, they were not sitting around discussing how they could do this, this and this or protect me, you know, emotionally from this or it was kind of like, no, I'm your parent, you have to learn these things. It was more hands off. And I think there is something to be said for the way that we feel we need to be everything for our child now. And there is a strong urge to protect them from failing too. And really, it's so much more helpful if we can model failure in a great way, like we're all learning here. Right, absolutely. And, you know, for parents who have very young children, you're sort of in the perfect position to be more hands off in those early years and let kids experience some bumps and bruises and make choices they regret, because then they'll be much better positioned to handle difficulty in, you know, early childhood and teen years. And, um, you know, one of the challenges I think parents do face now is because that's no longer our model, we do have to be more hands-on at times in supporting our kids. And it's hard. There's a little bit of tension there. We want to let our kids fail, but we also have to be that coach or um, mentor helping them process the failure sometimes and plan for what they might do differently. So it's a middle ground of where we we uh, no longer can just be at the hands-off parents. Like when I was growing up, I walk myself home from school in upper elementary, I made myself a snack, I managed my homework, I really was making so many decisions. And because I was doing that from very young, I was able to and our kids now if they haven't had that experience, they may need to build up to it a bit. And we can be that sort of sounding board and safe place to help them process their mistakes and, and plan for the future. And especially for kids who have any kind of, you know, neurodiverse challenge that they're managing, it can take a lot longer for that learning to happen than we maybe think it should. So we have to be braced with all of our patience and all of our Zen, you know, to, to just say, okay, I guess it's going to take another time to learn not to leave the notebook at school or that if you start a fight, you're going to get in trouble or, you know, all these things that our kids get into. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. 
Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes, developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites, turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60tilt at greenchef.com slash 60tilt. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. So what about this idea of letting go of control? So you talked about the pressure that we put on ourselves to do all these things right for how we feel as parents. But there's also that piece, especially when it comes to our kids' behavior, which is often external and in public situations or environments where it's going to be noticed by other people. So can you talk a little bit about that piece of letting go of what other people are thinking of of our parenting and our discipline? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, It's so hard. I think the silent judgment of other parents has been responsible for more bad parenting choices than possibly anything because <laughs> um, it's it's so you know visceral you can sort of feel when your kids acting up or even you know my daughter in third grade refused to brush her hair so every day she went to school with a tangle full of hair pulled back in a ponytail and it just was so hard for me to let go and say this is not a fight I'm getting into with my child. My relationship is more important. It's her body. And, and so, but once we start practicing letting go of those feelings that other people are judging us, the easier it gets. And when we take into the big perspective, um, keep that at the forefront of our mind, we're 
we're not worried about that one day in third grade or the, you know, moment in the grocery store at age four. We're, we're really supposed to be focused on age 25 or 35 when our kids are capable and independent and they will never get to be independent if we don't start letting them practice now. So for them to learn self-control, we have to start giving up control. And it's a process throughout our child's life and development that we begin with them as tiny babies and we're in charge of everything. And from that moment, we need to think of our goal as constantly expanding the circle of things they're responsible for and shrinking our part of that role until we completely work ourselves out of the job of being the parent because they can take over everything and launch successfully into the world and, again, make choices that maybe we might disagree with, but they can learn from them and take ownership of those choices. Yeah, and doing that appropriately in terms of respecting the timeline that they're on, which may be different from their same age peers. But I love that, you know, that's something we talk a lot about is keeping your eye on the end goal, taking a step back, looking at the big picture and what we ultimately want for our kids to be fulfilled, autonomous individuals, you know, who know how to, who can live the life that they want to lead. I always say to my kids, I say, your job is to figure out who you are, and how you know, you are going to be in the world, what fills you with passion, and what you're going to contribute. And my job is to support you because I can't make those decisions. I'm not going to know and or be able to tell what they should do that's going to be their passion. And one of the other people that I followed in my book, Vicki Hofel, who wrote a book called Duck Tape Parenting, she said, you know, in one of the scenes in my book that if your child is suddenly diagnosed with a fatal illness, you're not going to care about that missed homework or the broken coffee pot or whatever the thing in front of you that's amping you up right now is. So that's another way to keep it in perspective. Is this, is this really life or death or is this something that's a learning opportunity? Yeah, and that reminds me, and I've had been thinking about this and looking at your book too, the work of Alfie Cohn, who wrote Unconditional Parenting. And for me, that book, I don't know, Asher, who's now 13, was probably five or six when I looked at that for the first time. But the way he talked about just really questioning all these things that we're correcting our children about and and wondering why, why is this something that needs to be corrected? Why is this something you are asking your child to do? Where do those ideas stem from? And I think that's just really interesting. We I think we come into parenting with these ideas about what equals good behavior without sometimes even questioning where those come from. I'm wondering what you found in working on this book about the root of our expectations about what behavior should and shouldn't look like? Uh, that's a great question. Um, and yeah, I, it's so interesting with Alfie Cohn. I, I read that book when Maddie was like three and I just thought, this is insane. <laughs> right? this, I can't, this is ridiculous. And I sort of put it aside and I've completely come full circle to really appreciate all of his work and his ideas. And I think it's because I had to take that journey myself to start questioning. And, and now I say, we need to ration our no's, right? If you're going to tell your child no, 
that could provoke a power struggle. So make sure that you have a good reason for setting that limit or that boundary. And if you don't say no or correct your child all the time, then when you do, they will pay more attention because they realize it's more infrequent. You know, we, our kids get tuned out to our corrections. If we're like the parents and peanuts going, wah, 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 you know, if we're always correcting them. And yeah, the root of the expectations is such a great question. I, I think that actually our society has changed dramatically and we don't even realize it. But 50 years ago, the boss was in charge of the factory and then probably the dad was in charge of the mom and the mom was in charge of the kids. And there was this chain of command and authoritarian practices were just embedded throughout our society. And we've really come to be a much more open, respectful, and egalitarian world in, you know, the developing world. And certainly in the US, where we've had a civil rights movement, we had a women's rights movement, we've had LGBTQ rights movement, we're having a neurodiversity movement. And so all of these different groups of people are saying, we all deserve to be equal. So why wouldn't children also expect to be equal and to have a voice? And so all of those authoritarian ideas are still embedded in a lot of our adult brains and it seems natural to go to, but it's not the world we live in anymore. And perhaps our children understand that better than we do and they're demanding equality and a voice in our homes and in our schools that we just instinctively pull back from because of how things were when we were children. Yeah. That's such a great answer. It's such an interesting thing to think about. I love that thinking of this as its own movement and it is, and it's a really cool concept. Yeah. It's the children's rights movement. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So I wanted to just talk about behavior in the context of differently wired kids, because for parents raising atypical kids, the behavior is kind of, you know, again, that external thing It's the thing that we're constantly having to problem solve around to negotiate support for in schools. And it's what draws attention to our kids and creates a lot of the problems in the classroom for many of our kids. So do you have any thoughts on how we can best advocate for our children and compassionately educate, you know, educators and other people about shifting the way that they're perceiving our kids' behavior? Yes. Oh, such a good question. And this really is the challenge because even educators who say, oh, I understand, you know, we have this, you know, education plan and we have, you know, we know that your child has ADHD or that they have um, some kind of processing issue. They may understand it intellectually and believe it, but then they also have these expectations underlying the surface that they may not be consciously aware of. So even though intellectually they may say, oh, I understand that this behavior is coming from some specific different wiring in that child's brain, they respond to it instinctively. So it's just almost the same process as the way that we are raising our children is helping to kind of constantly educate the people who are in charge of our kids during the day. Um, So of course, that starts with connection, right? Having a strong relationship with your child's classroom teachers, the counselor, the principal, and whoever's in the school who can be an advocate, and sort of having a steady conversation where you can inject 
you know, oh, yeah, I know. It's so hard with, you know, kids who have ADHD that they really seem to space out or it takes them longer. Doesn't it take them longer to learn how to keep track of all those assignments so that it can be a little bit of an undercurrent in that conversation all the time? And then when something comes up, it is not the first time you've had that conversation with that educator and you're you're sort of reminding them, yeah, remember this kid has ADHD or has um, a processing issue. And we also have to be patient with them as well because it's not easy. I mean, I've observed so many classrooms for this book and it's a huge challenge to manage even typically developing kids in a class now really aren't so cooperative. So they have a lot on their plate. And as much as we can be sort of an ally and offering suggestions and understanding when they make mistakes and um, misjudge our kids and um, try to work together with them, that may not always feel fair that we have to do that. But it is often the only path that we have to try to take whatever allyship we can get in the school building and and build on that. And um, one great thing that I've seen some parents do is is start a book group with whoever in the in the building is sympathetic that maybe read, you know, my book, of course, The Good News About Bad Behavior, or read The Explosive Child or Lost at School or another book where you're not coming in to educate them, but you're relying on an expert or a book to say, uh, oh, these are some ideas that we should consider in how our kids are being handled in the in the school. We'll be right back after this quick break. If you listen to the show, you probably know that at least one in five children is differently wired. But did you know that approximately one in two women will experience hair thinning? If you're part of that 50%, you are absolutely not alone. But because hair thinning for women isn't something people openly talk about, going through it can feel lonely and frustrating. So why not do something about it with Nutrafol? Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding. Everyone's root causes of hair thinning are different, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth isn't going to cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow throughout different stages, postpartum, menopause, even for different lifestyles like a plant-based diet. To get your personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes, you can take a simple hair wellness quiz on Nutrafol.com. And because there's no prescription required, you can quickly get set up online with free shipping and automated deliveries, which make it so much easier to stick with your new hair care routine. See results in three to six months. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month's subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code TILT. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com promo code TILT. That's Nutrafol.com promo code TILT. I'm on the road this month and oh man, am I missing my sweet kitties Haskell and Lua. They've been a part of our family for more than two years and I'm so grateful they're keeping Darren such good company while I'm away. If you're getting a new pet soon, you're probably already thinking about everything you'll need to buy. Food, toys, a cozy bed, doggy bags or litter boxes. Something you may not be thinking about though is pet insurance. That's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. 
The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. Yeah, that's great advice. I mean, I think that we are in the best position, you know, parents with atypical kids to, and I, I've been using this phrase a lot, compassionately educate, because I think we need to see other people in this relationship with our child through the eyes of compassion. Because I mean, as parents, we know what we're dealing with, but these are uh, these other teachers and camp counselors and, you know, other people who interact with our kids are doing the best they can too. And without the same kind of tools and resources that we necessarily have access to. So I really like that allyship, you know, designing that alliance. Um, All right. I just wanted to circle back to one question. You talked about one into the statistic that one into, I think you said teenagers or by the time they're adults are um, experiencing a mood or behavior disorders. And Are there things that we can do as parents, as we're raising our kids to help them avoid having uh, mental and behavioral health problems down the road? Oh, what a great question. Yeah. So this is the National Institutes of Mental Health Study, and it was of all children, so um, kids up to age 18 was that statistic. I think that, you know, using this model that's in my book of connection, communication, and capability building is our best defense, where we are steadily trying to build our children's social and emotional skills and their executive function. And I sometimes joke, it's like, I have to be my kid's therapist and executive function coach because you're just sort of painstakingly every opportunity you get trying to nudge them further along that path. And when we're doing that, we are helping our kids to avoid um, challenges in the future. And one of the models in my book, the PAX Good Behavior Game, which is used in classes, has been shown to reduce symptoms of ADHD and ODD and to actually sometimes bring kids into the typical range who might have been on the borderline or have a, you know, have a diagnosis. So it can be very powerful And the other really important finding in my book was how devastating criticism can be to children. So the research on parental criticism is really scary. um, And it goes back in the behavioral science, uh, observational research is decades old that people who have some kind of uh, mental illness or psychiatric condition are more susceptible to parental criticism, and that when they have recovered and they're in a steady state, they can relapse much more easily when they're exposed to a lot of parental criticism. So that's another really strong argument that compassion and encouragement is the tool that will help our kids. And the more we can try not to correct and criticize and point out all of their mistakes, the the better position they'll be for mental health. And, and this holds for depression, 
eating disorders, schizophrenia, bunch of other conditions, alcoholism and addiction, that the more that our loved ones are critical of us, the more we're sort of weakened and, and more likely to relapse into those kinds of conditions. That is fascinating. And I was just talking about this idea of positive reinforcement with someone earlier today. There's a executive functioning coach named Seth Perler, who I've had on the show a couple of times, who is fantastic, by the way, if you're... I listened to that podcast. I loved it. Oh, good. <laughs> He's so great. And one of the things he said the first time I interviewed him was that our kids need five positive comments for every one negative piece of feedback. And when he said that, I was like, oh my gosh, I am doing this wrong. You know, and I had to sit down with my husband and say, hey, we really need to cut back on just the little, littlest things, you know, don't yeah. forget to put your napkin here. Don't, you know, just all those things, those are all can be perceived as I'm screwing up, I'm doing it wrong. And so I've, since that conversation made such an effort to notice, you know, just notice all the growth that's happening. And it's, I recognize how Asher responds to those things. And, and I love that that's such a piece of helping our kids, you know, become healthier adults who feel good about themselves. That's really fascinating. Yeah, they're, we're like the memory keepers for our kids. They may not notice how they're growing and changing. So we, the more we can point it out, the better. And our kids, you know, kids who are atypical, they know. They can they they know they're making mistakes. They already feel bad about themselves. Mm -hmm. They can see, you know, compared to their peers, how they're different. So they don't need us pointing out those mistakes to them. Exactly. <laughs> Tell me something I don't already know. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So your book is called The Good News About Bad Behavior. And I would like you to tell us what the good news is about bad behavior. <laughs> the good news is that it is a totally normal way that kids develop nowadays, that these things that seem like bumps in the road or problems are just the path to success. And so we should, as I said in the beginning, view them as opportunities and not problems. And the other good news is that there's so many research-backed, road-tested methods of discipline that are compassionate and collaborative that will help our kids to develop the skills that they need. So there's so many amazing resources. And I tried to kind of pull all of them into my book and highlight the four that I thought were the most comprehensive. Um, so there's so many different things to try. And if one doesn't work, probably another one will. And even when we as adults mess up and criticize our kids or yell at them or blame them, that itself is an opportunity for us to model apologizing and making amends for a mistake. So it's hard parenting any child, but especially differently wired kids. And we should be compassionate with ourselves as well, that if we mess up and we don't do what we had intended, we can then see that as a chance to show our children how we take responsibility for making a mistake and, and how we can be, you know, apologetic and, and make amends. And they're so forgiving when we actually are sincere about that. Absolutely. I get a lot of practice with that one. And <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely paying off. So first of all, congratulations on the book. It really is fantastic. And it's so well researched. And it's a great resource for all parents, but um, there's so much practical application for parents raising atypical kids. So can you tell us how listeners can find you? And I know that you're on a book tour right now. So anything you want to share about that as well? 
Yes, I appreciate the question. Uh, my website is katherinrlewis.com, and that has my book tour schedule, and it has articles that I've written or been interviewed in. I'm also on Facebook at Katherine R. Lewis, or that's my Facebook page, and Twitter is Katherine Lewis. Instagram is Katherine Reynolds Lewis, which I'm just learning. So I welcome <laughs> any tips on using Instagram, but I'm really always excited to connect with anybody who's read the book or who's interested in these ideas. Um, my contact information is all on the website as well. Wonderful. And my tip for Instagram is just all selfies all the time. So <laughs> no. um, listeners, I will make sure that all of the links for Catherine's social media and website and her book tour will be on the show notes page. So you can just go there and click through and find that as well as her book, The Good News About Bad Behavior. Catherine, thank you so much for coming by. I'm so happy to have had this conversation with you. And I look forward to staying connected with all the awesome work you're doing. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really glad that we were able to discover one another and look forward to hopefully meeting in person sometime soon. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, including links to Catherine's book, The Good News About Bad Behavior, her book tour stops, and all the other resources we discussed, visit tiltparenting.com slash 111. If you like what we're doing at the Tilt Parenting Podcast and you'd like to support us, there are a few easy and meaningful ways you can do this. One is to join my Patreon campaign. Patreon is an online platform that allows people to make a small monthly contribution to support the work of an artist or a musician, or in my case, a podcaster. It's super easy to sign up and even a small donation helps. If you'd like to support the show, visit patreon.com slash tiltparenting, or you can find a link at the Tilt Parenting website. The other way you can help is to head over to iTunes and leave a rating or review or both if you haven't done so already. This really helps keep our podcast highly visible, which in turn makes it easier for me when I try to land those big guests. Thank you so much. And thanks again for listening. For more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.